now is really where you're going to differentiate the ones that are really good at growing businesses versus the ones that just got lucky. Hello and welcome to Growth Masterminds. My name is John Gutsheer. Our guest today is the Chief Growth Officer at one of the world's leading K-12 coding platforms. It's been used by over 60 million kids in 150 countries. Before that, he was a senior VP for growth at IMBU. Before that, he was at Roku and led senior marketing roles in many other places. He's also the best-selling author of Lean AI. His name is Lomit Patel. Welcome, Lomit. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me, John. Hey, it's great to have you. It's great to have you back. We've chatted multiple yeah. times before. You've always got great insights. Looking forward to learning about them. I want to talk about cockroaches. I want to talk about companies that are hard to kill, apps that are hard to kill, apps that survive in tough times because we are having tough economic times, right? We've got a whole generation of marketers out there who might only know up and to the right, but money's not free anymore. And the next round might be a down round. Ad revenue, maybe a little tougher to get. We got CTV taking some of that. Others, the growth is slowing, might be tougher to sell subscriptions. It's generally tough times. How do you see the era environment we're in right now? So the way I look at it right now is that everybody can look like a genius when the markets are great. And same goes with growing apps. But I feel now is really where you're going to differentiate the ones that are really good at growing businesses versus the ones that just got lucky and were able to ride the wave of, of everybody else doing well. We're not when, talking about crypto. <laughs> no, we're not talking about crypto. We're just talking about just growing good fundamental businesses. And I think the big thing now is really at least if you look at the past, whatever, five, six, seven years, there was such an over-index emphasis on just growth at all costs, right? Because it was really cheap to get money at that time, especially in startups. So it was really about just buying your way to growing as quickly as possible. But now it's really coming down to the fundamental of not just buying at all costs, but really having the balance around how do you acquire users and how do you retain, engage, and monetize and getting the full balance around the entire user funnel. So really being, I would say, a heavy emphasis now is really coming down to retention too, right? It's about how do you retain your best users and talking about things that people maybe never really spend a lot of time on, which is your lifetime value. What is your true lifetime value and how are you predicting that lifetime value? Because before you could get away with coming up with some aspirational predictions on, on you know, lifetime value. And most people were buying it because you were able to cover it up by just bringing in a lot of new users. But now you can't really get away with that. Yeah, open the fire hose for the top yeah. of the market, not worry too much about the leaks at the bottom. Let's talk about cockroach companies and cockroach apps that survive in tough times, that use money, that grow maybe a little slower, but more sustainably. How do you define a cockroach app? I would, uh, the way I would define a cockroach app really comes down to, is it really adding value to the user at the end of the day? It really comes down to, to the basic premise of, is there true product market fit? And product market fit is the way I define it in simplistic ways is that if that product was to go away, is anybody really going to cry about it? <laughs> Not what you'll find for the most part. It's the cry test of product market cry fit. Test. I love it. <laughs> it's the cry test because ultimately there's, there's, there's a lot of nice me too's out there, but ultimately I don't think people need a lot of me too's. And I'm a big fan of your show and, and I've been, there's been plenty of guests you've been on who talk about 
yeah, on average, most people may have 50 to 100 apps, but how many do they actually use? It really comes mm -hmm. down to a hand. You could count it on a single hand, like maybe if you're lucky, five of those apps have really been used. The others are just dormant apps just sitting there who, in other words, are really a cockroach app, right? Because nobody really values it enough. So for the vanity's sake, you could say, wow, we had millions of people download our app and that's huge. That's great. But the real question is how many people are really using it? What's your real retention rate on that app? So you've been in a lot of different verticals. You've been in entertainment, social, maybe quasi dating, other places like that. You've also, you're now in education, which is interesting. Talk about verticals that do well in downturns and verticals that maybe struggle. Yeah. And what I will say is just to add on to what you said, but the good and bad is I've been around a lot longer than most people and haven't been through a couple of economic downturns. So what I can speak to is just my experience. And I may have got lucky in picking some of the companies that definitely <laughs> shot working All with. I got lucky at some point. You know, we, we did. But entertainment for the most part, and I'll use Roku as an example, because I joined them really early in 2008, and that was a huge economic meltdown. And most people will ask me, why would you join a company nobody really knew about? The reason why I really joined that company ultimately was because in what happens in an economic slowdown is that people need to still figure out how to spend time. And they're less likely to spend that time going out and looking for entertainment. And so it's going to be more about how do you entertain yourselves at home, as well as trying to figure out how do you cut back on costs of entertainment. And that was really the premise of what we did at Roku, which was real Roku was the company that really created a whole category around streaming and it really rolled on the wave where people were really looking to cut back their cable bills. And so what was the alternative? Roku entertainment categories will still continue to, to do well in this next economic slowdown. Another category that I got lucky with joining and learning about was gaming. Gaming obviously did really well during the pandemic. Primarily, one way to look at which categories will do well during the economic slowdown is just look at what categories did well during 2020, 2021, when there was like a bit of an economic slowdown. Gaming did well because, again, people were looking for social connections and you couldn't really go out and get that. And in this economic environment with the slowdown, I know gaming has come under a lot of pressure, but still, People still need to figure out how to keep their mind active and not go brain dead and depressed, whatever's going around. So I feel gaming is another category that, that will do well. But the one that really excites me and the reason why I joined Tinker is because education is is a category that, that I'm really bullish on. The reason why I'm bullish on I'm kind of recession-proof. You're not going to stop educating your kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could try. People try to do that, experiment with homeschooling when the whole pandemic hit. But I think a lot of those parents that, I mean, for the most part, realize it's tough to try to teach your parents because I, being a parent, can't really influence my kids to do things as well as telling them do, to do the same thing. So education, yeah, for the most part, K through 12 is, is recession-proof. But the other part of education apps that, that I wanted to touch on is that Obviously, with a lot of people losing jobs, and this happened in 2008, there's, a, there's an overemphasis into either do you want to go back into higher education to, to learn new skills for making any career transitions, or do you want to reskill and learn skills that are going to help you to become more employable? And coming back to that point, the reason why Tinker was really 
exciting for me when I was thinking about my next challenge is that the mission we have is to really get every high school student to be exposed to learning how to code by 2033. And as you can imagine, there's millions of kids that are coming out through K through 12. And so in terms of the addressable market, we're talking about 30, 40, 50. But if you look at a worldwide, it's about 40 to 60 billion potential kids that, that, that fall into that addressable market of that wanting to learn. And the majority are between K through 12. And, and that's the sweet spot where Tinker has got massive reach and in, in really being integrated into over 100,000 schools across 150 countries with six, over 60 million kids that have used the product and been successful. I was going to say I could shorten that up and get it done in about two years. I'll give them OpenAI and I'll say, hey, yeah. OpenAI, code me yeah. an app in Python to access a yeah. database and display it on the web. Yeah. But I can't guarantee the results of that call. You yeah. may not understand it either. <laughs> yeah. But what I will say is, and I'm glad you bring up OpenAI because right now schools are struggling to really figure out how does that really fit into, into, in, into the curriculums that they have. The way I would look at it is that it's actually an, a learning opportunity to really figure out how that can aug augment the education system to become even better. Because ultimately, the future of work isn't going to be about sitting at desks and trying to write code, but it's about how do you fast track your knowledge on understanding code? Because that's the premise that is really important. Because everything that we everything that, that we interact with when it comes to technology is ultimately written by a line of code. And as consumers, most of us are huge consumers of tech, but the ones that are really making the money and having worked at a number of startups that have been successful, I know it's the engineers that build the tech. And having an understanding on, on, on what goes on behind the scenes is really important. And any job that you look at in, in the near future, it's especially with AI and automation coming into play, it's having some knowledge on how coding works will just make your career that much more recession-proof and be able to thrive and grow in the future. Yeah. Yep. Now, you're the chief growth officer. You've led growth roles for multiple apps and platforms. Talk about growth in the mobile space right now when maybe your budget for growth just got slashed in half and you've got to be smarter, more efficient, more effective. How are you growing your app? today? Yeah. What I will say is biggest challenge facing everyone in mobile growth is all around sort of data and privacy. And if you take it back another layer, it really comes down to really understanding the attribution around how much are you spending and how much are you really getting back for, the, for that money that's been invested to grow the business. Mm. And one way to layer back from that is, is to figure out what is a couple of things, but one is to really have a diversified monetization model. On, on your mobile app. And this is something that I was able to influence pretty heavily when I was at IMBU, where we were able to move away from just being either highly dependent on being an ad-driven app to really being subscription-driven as well as in-app purchase. So we had three different ways to monetize users, and that really helped us, especially to be able to not over-index in any one form of monetization. The second part in mobile growth 
what I would say, especially when it's harder to get a read in terms of how your paid user acquisition works, mm -hmm. figure out product-led growth and what are things you can do to really be able to get better at increasing the engagement and retention. And, yeah. and so you're able to increase your lifetime value by just increasing different ways of monetizing users, but, in, but increasing engagement and retention I would say really comes down to increasing your ability to leverage AI and automation to personalization, to increase the way you can personalize the experiences within your apps. Now there's a lot of good marketing technology platforms that you can lean on that can really help you. Sure, you're not going to have all of the great data you had before, but you still have access to your first party data and you can still build great personal experiences on that. But when it comes to, to user acquisition, which I know that's ultimately the hammer that a lot of companies depend on, there, one of the things that we were able to do at IMBU was ultimately to try and identify early signals, even if we weren't getting great signals. And even before a lot of these privacy changes were happening. Yeah, you had the IDFA still. When you're still looking for very early signals. That's right. And look at what were those early signals that, that you could still depend on to try and build up a predictive lifetime value mm -hmm. on that. And then whatever that model was, pump back a different signal back to the mobile measurement partners. So instead of relying on registrations and revenue, you come up with your own formula of a signal and optimize to that. And that's what we ended up doing. And Albeit, and that's even more important right now. More important now, because ultimately you're building your own algorithm and on, on, on training, whether it's Google, Facebook, or whatever AI that you're using, to that, that you have more predictability on sending that data back for it mm -hmm. to optimize on, and you can set different values of that. And that ultimately becomes one way of creating your own moat around whatever happens around data privacy, because then, then you're less dependent on all these other signals, and you can at least rely on your own signal that you create. Absolutely. What struck me, I asked you about growth and your first answer, you got to user acquisition, but your first answer was monetization. And that was interesting because I would say that less than 1% of mobile growth experts would start with monetization. But it struck me a little bit because A, you're not growing if it's not profitable, not if you're not getting free money. <laughs> And even when you get free money, we've seen those companies, they get tens of millions of dollars, they burn through it and nothing's left. But you started with monetization. Is that, has that always been part of your mindset or are you more specifically focused on that now? So what I will say is, again, I've been around a little bit longer than most people. And so- You see a few gray hair? I, I, I know. <laughs> yeah, so I was going to say that actually comes from having spent so much time working closely with CEOs and CFOs. You ultimately know what values to them, right? And I think the sooner you can kind of learn the, uh, learn the terminology that really matters to the people in power in different companies that you work in that pretty much have the ability to either increase or decrease your budget, the better you get at really focusing on, on, on what matters to them. And the monetization, I would say, has been really important part, especially since, well, at least the last like seven to 10 years of my career, primarily because I knew that by showing some predictability in terms of what a return is on whatever investment that you're, that you're making or the budget you're asking for, the more you're likely to get yeses versus noes on it. Here, I always thought when the CFO turns up yeah. high, but <laughs> clearly not. They, they do turn up high, but they normally get high on, on, looking, <laughs> on looking at a lot of greens rather than reds on the balance sheet. Good. 
You've already talked about it a little bit. You touched on it, but I do want to talk about adjusting growth strategies in an era of privacy with less marketing signal. We've hit on iOS and with SK ad network and app tracking transparency, there's much less signal. You're not seeing an IDFA. You don't have long-term cohorts. You don't have the benefit of seeing data for days and weeks and months to understand your LTV. You have to look at those early signals. And we know later this year, probably early 2024, Privacy Sandbox will come in and do something similar on the Android side as well. You hit first-party data as you're talking about, and everybody's trying to get more first-party data, but really understanding how those early touches of your platform, those early first-party bits of data can translate into, this is likely to be a high-value customer. This is likely to be a high-value user. Talk about that a little bit about how you're seeing that now and how you're building for that. Yeah, what I would start off with is whether, whether things are good or bad, one of the things you really want to try to focus on is how do you build trust quickly with your users? And trust is really the currency. And so what are things that you can do? At, and at IMBU and like at Tinker, we call it a first-time user experience. And I'm sure other companies probably use a similar definition. Or, but ultimately it means is first-time and, and that first-time user experience actually starts even before somebody gets to your app. It's, it really starts with... First touch of the app, right? First, 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 team. first touch of the app, what's the experience in the app first store? Ad. First ad, what's that ad? And so pe- people tend to forget. It's like they over-index on certain pieces rather than the entire journey. So, I, so what I will say is really focus on the entire journey to really set the right precedent before someone even gets into your app. And once they get into your app, try to remove as much friction as possible. So for example, do you really need to know how people heard about you when they first got into your app? Or do you really want to be able to give them the reassurance that, hey, register because you're going to be able to get X, Y, and Z value. Try to over-index on giving the value versus extracting value. Extracting value being the trade-off of of anyone who's going to give you any form of data wants to know what are they going to get in return. And mm-hmm. as long as you, if you think of that as a bank account, you, you want to be able to make sure that you're in the credit and not the deficit. Absolutely. Fill up their bank account, yeah. fill up their account, make them super happy. I love the 360 degree vision there. Yeah. And I also like, and as you're a chief growth officer, not just a user acquisition manager, you have a broader purview of this as well. Yeah. Any first touch, any brand mention is really critical. I've even seen marketers go at mobile marketers for mobile apps, games and others go into SEO because a touch that I discover is very different than a touch that comes and interposes itself between me and what I'm doing. So those are yeah. different qualities of touches. If I discover it, it feels different than if it gets shoved in front of me. So there's a holistic way of advertising and growing as well, correct? And I can give you a quick example in terms of Tinker, at least one of the things that I'm trying to do here, because we, we have a lot of great user data. As you can imagine, just the sheer volume and scale that we have these millions of kids using the platform and all of these schools and teachers. But one of the first things I've tried to do here, and I've been here close to four months, was really to really aggregate our data into a really good customer data platform. So at least we can start extracting value out of that data. And just having data disparted in different places doesn't add a lot of value. The first thing that I would be doing if I have an app right now is just make sure that you have your data aggregated in one place and you're getting good, clean data. 
The second thing you want to think about is your data acquisition strategy, which is ultimately all these different touch points, but how are you going to be able to acquire that data and build that trust? And now that we have the data, the, now I'm able to work on the next phase, which is similar to what I did back at IMBU, which is now, how do we take this data to really build up really true personalized experiences? For example, a parent that has a six-year-old needs to see a complete different experience from a parent that comes for a 10-year-old or a mm -hmm. parent that has a teenager, because ultimately there's different life stages for parents as well as a child and in terms of, in terms of how the product appeals to them. Mm -hmm. now, one, of the, one of the things that, that a lot of people may not realize, education for the most part is pretty dry and boring, which is why a lot of people don't believe. Really <laughs> I think people realize that they've been in school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so one of the things that, that, that kind of fascinated me about Tinker, and at least if you look at the apps, the Inet tech that do well, they really implement a gamification element to it. And one of the things that I really took away from my time working in gaming is that in gaming, they're definitely ahead of the curve when it comes to user acquisition and engagement and retention, because, because you ultimately it's a highly competitive category, right? And you really have a short window to really get people to, to stick around. And as I mentioned, Tink, Tinker has a similar gamification element to it. And that's one of the reasons why we've been able to get millions of kids that still continue to love it, love the product because it uses a play-based approach. And any product that you have, if you can make it fun, then people are more likely to engage with it. Obviously, there's certain things that are serious, like health-related things. But for the most part, try, try to engage with people on a human level where they feel that, where they actually see it as being fun and interesting. And then I think that can really help you improve your engagement and retention. Absolutely. We're going to have to cut this short because we could talk for another hour, I'm sure. But guess what? Other meetings are calling and we can't keep it too long. Really do appreciate the time. This was super interesting. Thanks for having me, John. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. <laughs>